Woodland Hills? My one true talent. Good to see you all here this morning. Good to be together with you. Um, I really encourage you, if, it's, if it's at all possible, to make it down to Lake Phelan and be part of this baptism celebration. It's uh, one of the highlights of the year. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, I want to give thanks to Oshida and, and Dave, who did such a great job the last two weeks. Weren't they great? Gave frees me to uh, do some ministry outside of Woodland Hills Church. There's this movement going on that is just beautiful and exciting. New wine is being poured out and new wineskin are being experimented with. People doing church in a lot of different ways. And so I, I get to speak into that a little bit. And so uh, I appreciate the time to, to, to do that. And how do you like my shirt? Awesome. So what? you can't see it. Can you see it? Yeah. Yeah, they're all superheroes. And here's Jesus saying, and that's how I save the world. <laughs> Yeah, someone gave me this. So it's, uh, in fact, most of the clothes I wear have been given to me. So, uh, man, it's pretty cool. Jesus, a uh, superhero. Well, um, if you've been here for any length of time, you may have heard me share this, but uh, uh, I have a son named Nathan who has uh, high-functioning autism. And those of you who have got loved ones who are on the autism spectrum, um, you know that one of their interesting characteristics, uh, one of the most endearing characteristics, one is that, uh, they always tell the truth. Uh, they, they, they quit in life, their life depended on it. They just speak the truth, uh, whether you like to hear it or not. Um, you have bad breath. I mean, this just comes out. <laughs> the other thing is that they're very concrete uh, and tend to be quite literal. And so they have trouble getting idioms and analogies and things like that. So, for example, uh, when Nathan was about, I guess, eight or nine years old, right around there, um, he came up to me in my office one evening and he said, Dad, can we go out to Firefly Valley and, and catch some fireflies? Um, we had, where we were living, right down the road from us on Badness Heights. It wasn't a valley, we just called it that. But there was a field, and for several weeks in June, sometimes going into July, it would be lit up with these lightning bugs. And it was just spectacular. They were all over the place. And his favorite activity, it was really an obsession, would be to go out there, and he and I would just brave the famous... Minnesota blood-sucking mosquitoes, and we'd catch these, these lightning bugs, get a jar, and, and, and then we'd bring them home and go in the garage and shut off all the lights, and you got yourself a giant light bulb if you got all these lightning bugs, and he thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So, and usually I would go with them almost every night of the week during this period of time, because it was just one of the things we could do together. This night I couldn't do it, though. I had a, a I forget what the project was, but I had a deadline I had to make the next morning. I was going to be pulling an all-nighter. And so I said, I said, sorry, kiddo, tonight I, I can't go. And he goes, why? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really under the gun, I, uh, you know, I, and I have to get this thing in. And he looks at me with a puzzled look, and then he gets kind of angry. He goes, you're not under the gun. You don't, you don't even have a gun. <laughs> he had a point. And I, I tried to explain to him. I said, well, that's just a, a figure of speech. But then he got mad because speech doesn't have figures. So it went downhill from there. We, we had a lot of interesting conversations along those lines. But see, the thing that Nathan had trouble understanding is that with idioms, um, they're analogies, and analogies don't exactly represent the other thing. Uh, to, to understand an analogy, you have to understand the way it's like a certain thing, but the way it's also not like it. There's a like and unlike quality to all analogies or to all idioms of speech. Um, 
And if you don't get the way in which it's like it or not like it, you're going to miss the point. So when I say I'm under the gun, what I mean is that it's like I have a, a guy pointing a gun to my head and I'm under, because I'm under a lot of pressure. So it's, it's like that, but I'm not actually under a gun. Like there's not actually a guy pointing a gun to my head. And, and if you don't see that, you're going to have trouble getting the idiom. Got it? So the thing is, there's thousands of idioms that we have in English language, in France, in French, in German. Name any language, it has a lot of these idioms. Um, and if you're an insider of the language, if you grew up with it, you get it automatically. You, you just, you don't have to think about it. You know how, what it means because you know how it applies, how it's like it, but also how it's not like it. But if you've ever tried to learn a second language or a third language, the idioms can sound bizarre because uh, you don't get how it's like or not like it. It's, it, it seems very strange. So, like, I had to learn German uh, in grad school, and so I was practicing by reading this story. And the story involved um, one person trying to explain uh, something to this other person. And this other person was getting frustrated and finally said, Ich versteiner Bonhoff. Ich versteiner Bonhoff. Which literally means, I only understand the train or the train station. And I'm reading this thing going, what? Because you're not talking about a train. It's got nothing to do with trains. Trains aren't anywhere in the picture. All of a sudden, I only understand the train station. What could that mean? I thought maybe I translated something wrong, got my dictionary out. No, I, it means I only understand the train station. Well, it turns out it's an idiom. And it, 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 it actually means something like, uh, you got to break it down for me, or you're talking over my head, or speak in terms that I'll understand, something like that. And it comes, I guess, from the... Uh, experience that people have over in Europe, if you're traveling to a different country, you're going to a train station, and everyone around you can be speaking a different language, but you can still understand the train schedule because it's all in numbers. The 407 will arrive at 435 or whatever. So what the person is saying is, uh, right now I need you to be like a train schedule to me, all right? We just talk straight. Uh, talk in a way I can understand, because right now you're talking like, I, in, in, like a foreign language, speaking in tongues or something. So it's like being in a train station in that you want to understand something, you want to be put in simple terms you can understand, but it's not like being in a train station because you're not in a train station and, and you're not asking the person to speak to you only in numbers because that wouldn't work very well either. Okay, so it's like and unlike. Got it? That's how this language, it's, it's amazing the grammar you learn around here at Willow Hills Church if you just come to church. Maybe not much Bible, but you get a lot of grammar. So, so some, someone here is probably thinking, okay, I wish he could beat you on the bush and get to the point. But I don't have a drum and I don't see no bush, so what are you talking about? <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a parable, the parable of this wedding feast, a wedding banquet. And we're looking at it because it's got some troubling things in it. And we're in a whole series this summer on looking at troubling passages, passages that are hard to understand. So it, we're including this here. And the thing about parables that you need to know is that they are, it's a story that is one prolonged analogy Okay, the whole thing. is, And because it's an analogy, it will have things that are like what Jesus is talking about. And usually when he's talking about a parable, it has something to do with God or the kingdom of God. So it's like the kingdom of God, but there's going to be other things that are not like the kingdom of God. It's an analogy. And so to understand a parable, you need to understand um, uh, how things apply and how things don't apply. Uh, if you don't get that part, you're going to completely misunderstand uh, the, the, the parable. So we're going to be looking at this. Um, and so here, here's the thing. Well, I, 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 my hope is that as we 
get to see how things are like and unlike the kingdom of God in, in this particular parable, it will not only clear up the confusion about this parable, but you'll be able to apply it to every other parable. And you will avoid misinterpreting those. Because parables are actually one of the, the most misunderstood, misinterpreted aspects of the Bible. Because to us, it, it, it's like, I only understand the train. We're not insiders on that culture and on that language. So they can strike us as really strange, uh, and we're going to be inclined to misinterpret them if we're not paying uh, attention and don't know how to divide those things. So hopefully this will help you with all parables. Now before I actually get into the parable of the wedding feast, I'm going to give a general principle here, a rule of interpretation that will really guide us, right? I want you to lock this in. Uh, I'll state the principle, and then I'll unpack it, because you won't understand it at first. It will sound like you only understand the train. So here's the thing. When you find expected bad behavior in a parable, that is a not-like aspect of the parable. It's not like the kingdom of God. When people are acting in bad ways, but they're expected to act in bad ways, that's not, that, that's not the point of this analogy. It's a not-like quality. And get used to me talking like this, too, because the whole sermon is going to be like this. It like, it's a like aspect of the parable, a not-like aspect of the parable. But when you find unexpected good behavior, well, that, will, that is like the kingdom of God. And, and so we're kind of getting on the inside of this. So here's the deal. Jesus speaks mainly to uh, his main audience is uh, Galilean first century peasant Jews. Uh, some religious muckety-mucks would follow him around, um, and he would sometimes speak with them. But his primary audience is, is first century Galilean peasant Jews. And like any good teacher, Jesus draws from their common experience, things that his audience are, is going to be really familiar with. And he builds his stories around those sorts of things because they can relate to that. And one of the things, one of the most important things that all first century Galilean peasant Jews had in common is that they lived their whole life under the authority of kings and landowners, because they usually didn't have their own land, and, and uh, other kind of dignitaries. And they all knew that these kings and, and landowners and dignitaries tended to be nasty people. They could be cruel people. They could be capricious. They, they, they're uncaring. That's just, that's just, that was just their life, and everybody knows that. So Jesus often, in his parables, uses those figures, kings and landowners and, and uh, dignitaries, and he uses them just like his audience knew they were. They're nasty. They're unjust. They're sometimes cruel. They're often very violent. Um, so those folks are expected to be bad, and Jesus doesn't clean them up before he, po- he pulls them into his parable. In fact, here's another quality of parables, Jesus often exaggerates their nastiness. Uh, almost, sometimes to a ridiculous degree. Uh, and, and, and you can think of what he's doing here along the lines of a, of a political cartoon. Do you guys like political cartoons? Who likes political cartoons? I love them. I, I think the, some of them are so funny. I mean, just the way they look, they're funny. But, but and the way they work is that the, the, the cartoonists will exaggerate everything about the, the political person. Uh, they're, they're, they're the position they hold, they'll take it to the extreme, but also their physical features, you know, they just blow it up. So like with Donald Trump and most of these cartoons, he's got this huge hair, and, and, and he's got real tiny hands, and he's usually kind of morbidly obese, and, and his lips are all puckered up, you know. And, and we all know he doesn't actually look like that, uh, but, but it's funny. It's funny, and, and it's kind of poking fun at him and, and, and whatever. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He exaggerates these things. Because uh, he's kind of drawing out, he's, he's creating a verbal political cartoon. And there's a number of reasons why he does that. One thing is, it's funny. And a lot of people don't think Jesus had a sense of humor, but once you get to understand the parables, some of them are hilarious. And you can put them in their historical context. They're really, really funny. 
So there, it, it, there's an entertaining quality to his teaching, and that helps you know, these, his audience relate to it and hang on to it and stay with him. Uh, it also makes it easier to remember his lessons. By, by standing out, by saying shocking things, people remember that. And, and some scholars argue that it had a therapeutic quality to it. Uh, wherever you find uh, oppressed people groups, in first century Jewish peasantry, they were oppressed. But one of the ways you let off steam is by poking fun at the people who are lording over you. And, and so some of this is, you know, Jesus, I think, just kind of having some fun with this. But he always brings out a lesson in, 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 in the course of telling the story. The story is like the kingdom of God, but it's also going to be not like the kingdom of God. And it's going to have figures in it that are, are sometimes very, very unpleasant. Now, that's, that's really important to know because the single most common mistake that contemporary readers make when they read parables is they assume that when Jesus talks about a king or the landowner, or some other dignitary, he's talking about God. And trouble is, more often than not, in these parables, the king and the other dignitaries do nasty stuff, and so people then end up with a cruel, nasty, vindictive, sometimes capricious picture of God. Or at the very least, they, they, they'll argue that, that Jesus' use of these figures, he's condoning their behavior, especially violence, when the characters act violent, which they frequently do. Because in reality, that's how they were. But people think, oh, that God must be okay with violence, and so God must be okay with my violence. And they justify that. One of the main pushbacks I've gotten on, on the cross vision and crucifixion of the warrior God, two books I wrote last year, where I argue that God is altogether nonviolent. People trying to refute me, they appeal to the parables. Well, if God's nonviolent, how come Jesus portrayed God as violent so often in the parables? And I submit to you that if, if you're interpreting them right, he never does that. He never does that. And, and we'll see that as we go through this, this parable. So, so um, when these dignitaries and kings act in ways that his audience knew they acted, and Jesus exaggerates a little bit because he's drawing a political cartoon, he's, Jesus there isn't saying anything that the audience doesn't already knew. No. In fact, as, as Jesus would be talking about the king who slaughtered these people and imprisoned these people or whatever, his audience would be going, amen, that's what those kings do. They are nasty, nasty, nasty. Come on, preach to Jesus. They already know that. That's not revelational. So when there's expected bad behavior, that's, that's a prop in the, in the uh, parable. That's, not, don't, that's a not-like aspect of the parable. But once in a while, Jesus will attribute surprising good behavior or good attitude towards these dignitaries. And that would shock his audience because they're going, no way, no way, no way. And, and that's Jesus' way of calling attention to this. He is say, now saying something they don't already know, and so that is a like aspect of the parable. Got that? When it's expected bad behavior, it is not like. When it is unexpected good behavior, it is like. And then Jesus sometimes will throw in sort of exaggerations and absurdities uh, that are neither good nor bad. They're just weird. But the, that's because he's drawing a political cartoon, and in a political cartoon, everything's supposed to be kind of surrealistic and out of place or whatever. Okay, so that's what you're doing with parables. So are you ready to look at Matthew 22? All right, let's go to it. Matthew 22, this is the parable of the wedding feast. All right, first it says, once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. He says once more because he just, Matthew just given two other parables before this. Uh, and Matthew always groups things thematically. And, and the previous two uh, parables were about the kingdom of God and who gets in and who doesn't. And that, we're going to see, is what this parable is about as well. So once more he spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Compared to. That's the analogy. So we can know that this story, in some respects, is going to be like the kingdom of God, but in other respects, it's not going to be like it. And we have to tell the difference, otherwise we're going to misunderstand the parable. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding, uh, wedding banquet, but they would not come. Note that he says he sent his slaves uh, to, to these folks who had been already invited. Uh, the way this worked in the first century is that when a king or a dignitary, a dignitary was going to throw a big feast or a wedding banquet or whatever, you first send your slaves out to invite the, the, their, your fellow dignitaries, and it was always fellow dignitaries, your allies, your friends. Um, and then when the feast was ready, sometime later, um, you'd go out and say, okay, now's the time to come. So these folks, these slaves are going out and to tell them now's the time to come. Because these people had already been invited and had accepted the invitation, otherwise they wouldn't be getting the call to say now's the time to come, the feast is ready. But what's surprising is that all these people declined the offer. We don't want to come. Now, his audience would be saying, they'd be chuckling, saying, no way would that ever happen. Because uh, it wouldn't happen, especially not from an invitation from a king, especially with your friends and allies, especially after they had already accepted the invitation. It's an absurdity, but it's a political cartoon, so it's supposed to be kind of absurd. It's just, it, it just wouldn't happen. It's an unrealistic thing. But then he goes on. Again, he sent other slaves, after they had declined it, saying, tell those who have been invited, look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my, my fat calves, not just skinny calves, fat calves, have been slaughtered. Vegetarians never get a fair shake in these stories. And everything is ready. Are, are there veggie options uh, at the barbecue afterwards? Okay. Ah, good. No longer, I'm, I'm no longer discriminated against. Um, so, so, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But listen to this. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his, uh, his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, you can see the political cartoon quality of this uh, in that in real life, a, a real king would never stoop low like this, humble himself, uh, and, and ask again. It, it, you don't ask twice when you're the king. And so the audience would be going, no way would he go back to them after that. But it's a political cartoon. And so, so he goes back. He humbles himself. And he actually is begging these people. Come on, you guys. I got it all ready for you. And, and no, no actual king would, 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 uh, would do that. Not only that, but if it's ridiculous that they would decline the one offer, it's super ridiculous to the point of absurdity that they declined it twice. But what's really preposterous is that they would take his slaves and mistreat them and kill them without any motive. No motive. Why do that? And, and why, how, how could you think you could get away with it? It would never happen in real life. But... This is a political cartoon, so it's, it's, it's uh, so it happens. But it's, 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 it's absurd. And so this king, even though no earthly king would ever be this gracious, the fact that Jesus is here attributing an unexpected good quality to this king, that's an indication that the kingdom of God is like this. God, God is like this. Earthly kings aren't, but God is. In fact, most scholars agree that part of what's going on here is Jesus, the backdrop to this parable is, is the history of Israel's relationship with God. And, and God not only extends the invitation twice, but over and over and over again, he's imploring his people to come into this covenant and to keep covenant because they always are unfaithful. 
and he sends prophet after prophet, and often they kill the prophets. So that's part of what's going on here. So he, out of this political cartoon, Jesus then draws this point. God is, in fact, gracious like this king is in this instant. But that doesn't mean that everything about this king is, is, is alike. Most of it is a not like. But this one aspect is alike. Because now we come to the next verse. The king was enraged, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Mr. Humble and Gracious King turns into an enraged killing machine like that. Uh, goes from being Mr. Nice Guy to very, very nasty. Now, his audience all knew that kings could be capricious and, 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 and uh, temperamental and ruthless. And so this isn't a surprising thing. What you say is he offered the invitation twice. That's a surprising thing. But now that he's killing people, they'd be all saying, yeah, that sounds like that's par for the course. That's what kings would do. So that's a not-like aspect to this, this parable. audience knew that, that, uh, that kings just, uh, this is what they do. But there's a political cartoon quality to this because Jesus really pushes his ruthlessness to the limit, kind of exaggerates it. I mean, for one thing, why would slaughter a bunch of people because they declined an invitation? That's already sort of over the top, even by ruthless first century standards. But why would you burn down the city? Especially, presumably, it, it, because he's the king of the city, and you just would torch a lot of your own real estate. So that's, that's kind of over the top. And now their families are going to be homeless if they're even alive anymore. And what do you do with them? You don't want to create problems for yourself. So that's, that's an exaggeration. The other thing is that this king, uh, he can't even wait till the banquet's done. He just told us that everything's set, the dinner's ready, calves, everyone's been slaughtered, you know, and all that. Come and eat. And now all of a sudden, he wants to put that on hold to go and slaughter his former allies and friends and burn down their city. Scorched earth policy going on here. Um, well, it, it, here's the thing. It, doing that isn't something you can expect to do in an afternoon and then go home for supper. Uh, if you're going to declare war on these fellow dignitaries uh, and burn down their city, they're going to push back, and you're going to be involved in a war for quite some time. And so it's not realistic. But again, this is a political cartoon. Now, we paid all, everything on hold. He doesn't even have other guests to invite. He hasn't done that yet, but he's going to right now go and slaughter them all. So it's a little bit of a part, uh, cartoon going on. But the thing is, is that on the basis of this political cartoon, Jesus is saying that there, is, uh, there are dire consequences for rejecting God's invitation. And again, he has Israel in mind here. Um, in fact, the dire consequences, don't look to the king here to see how those dire consequences are coming about. That's not the like aspect of the story. But there are dire consequences. And in fact, within 40 years, uh, Israel experienced those dire consequences. Uh, Rome came in in 70 AD and, and tore down the temple and massacred tons of people and then drove the survivors into exile permanently. And this is, Jesus himself says that was a judgment of God. But God didn't bring about this judgment by being enraged like this earthly king did. In fact, in Luke 19, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he, he gives this prophecy about this coming judgment. And Luke says he's crying. In fact, he uses this word, kaleo, which can be interpreted as wailing. Jesus, and Jesus reflects the heart of God as he wails over what's coming on Jerusalem. This isn't something God wants to bring about. He's not trying to get even. He's not being vindictive or anything of the sort. It's just that at this point, there's nothing more that he can do. Uh, and, and the way he brings this judgment about isn't by sending in troops like this earthly king did. Hey, Rome, go sick him. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. Rome already wants to do that. 
They've been wanting to do that for decades. Tension had been growing between Jerusalem and Rome. And so all that God did in this judgment and all that God ever does in the judgment, it's what God did on the cross, and that is he gives people their wish, and, and if you want to push me away, he lets himself be pushed away. He withdraws. That's why Jesus said that the house of God is desolate. Uh, it's vacant. Uh, God, God has left the premises. Because you pushed God out of the premises for after, century after century after century. And the last thing to go was the crucifying God himself, Emmanuel, when he comes to earth. And, and that left Israel vulnerable now, and Rome does what it wants to do. So there's a like and a not like quality to, to uh, the, the, this whole thing. He's not like that king being ruthless and sending troops and burning cities and all, to be vindictive. But there are dire consequences for rejecting his offer. Okay, then it goes on and says, Then uh, the king said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. So those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king invites peasants, even bad peasants, to fill his dining hall to celebrate the, his son's wedding. His audience at this point would be going, no way on earth would that happen. Under no circumstances would an actual king invite peasants, even bad peasants, into his dining hall. And so this is an unexpected good thing that Jesus is attributing to this king. Surprises his audience, which is his way of saying pay attention to this, because this is one way in which that God is like this. He invites all. Now there's an unlike quality to it as well, because this king only invites all the peasants because his Friends had rejected him, uh, and they were unworthy. In fact, now they're dead. But uh, uh, whereas for, for in, in reality, God doesn't invite everybody as a plan B. God invites everybody because God created everybody, and God loves everybody, and God wants everybody to be saved. So there's a like and unlike going on here. Amen. Then we come to the final part of this, this parable. It says, uh, but when the king came in to see the guests, these peasants that he just invited in, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, always be careful, be wary when the king calls you friend. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And the man was speechless. He didn't have an excuse. I'll be significant later on. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Him. Isn't that special? Okay, this king is again acting ruthless. See, it goes back and forth. You got to know what, what applies and what doesn't apply. He's now acting ruthless again. And that wouldn't surprise his audience at all. They're like, yeah, that's what kings do. So, so that's a not like uh, aspect of this, this uh, uh, parable. And you can see some, uh, a little dimension of the political cartoon continuing because Jesus exaggerates the ruthlessness of this guy, or at least the authority that this guy has to carry out his ruthlessness. Uh, the king has him bound hand and foot and then thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that phrase, uh, outer darkness, as well as weeping, as well as gnashing of teeth, or grinding of teeth, you find that in the Bible, you find it in the literature of the time, the apocalyptic literature of the time. And in the, in the apocalyptic literature, it always is referring to people who are consigned to a realm where they're facing the final judgment. All right? It's a spiritual realm of darkness where they're facing the final judgment. And 
however much power a king has and however ruthless a king may be, there's no king that could put a person there, bind them up and throw them there. That's in a different dimension. And his audience would get that. So that's part of the political cartoon. It's exaggerating this. But he is saying that there are dire consequences for not being dressed properly at the wedding feast. And I'll come back to what that means here in, in a moment. Some folks have, uh, one of the troubling aspects of this, this parable uh, has to do with this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and it's troubling to a lot of people because uh, they've been taught that this proves that people are suffering consciously in hell. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you got that teaching? And, and that hell goes on forever. So for all eternity, they're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they're in exquisite pain. And what's troubling about that is it's hard for some of us to reconcile this idea of God keeping people in existence in exquisite pain for no other purpose than for having them have that pain because you're not trying to redeem them or anything. You just are enjoying them having the pain, I guess. And, and how do you reconcile that concept with this idea that God is perfect love and has a perfect love for all people? Would you keep someone in existence that you loved throughout eternity just so they can experience pain? It's kind of a mismatch there. Don't you think? So here's the thing. The phrase doesn't mean that at all. If, if, if you look at the, how it's used in the literature of the time, and as well in the Old Testament, do, do a little search on weeping and grinding of teeth, um, what you'll find is this. It's always applied to people who are facing the final judgment. It, it, it doesn't describe people as they're going through the judgment. They're not in the judgment yet. It's, they're facing the judgment. And the weeping is not a crying because you're in pain, or the, and the gnashing of teeth isn't because you're in pain. Um, the weeping, as it's always applied, is, is, it has to do with either fear of, uh, of a coming judgment, or sometimes it's sorrow over the judgment, but it's not sorry that, you're, that, that you got yourself there. No, it's, it's, it's a defiant sorrow, like I'm going to lose. I, I'm not going to get my way. And the grinding of teeth, just do a little Old Testament search on that, you'll find it always refers to people being enraged towards someone else. It's not a, like, oh, I'm in such pain. It's rather, I can't stand your guts. It's a triple kind of grinding, you know? And, and, and so, like, in, in Job 16, Job is kind of out of his brain because he's been through such suffering and a terrible ordeal, and he's saying nasty things about God, and one of the nastiest things he says about God, and, and it comes up in Job 16, I think it's verse 9, he says, you are my adversary, which is the word for Satan, and, and uh, uh, you grind your teeth at me. And he's saying, you really hate me, don't you? And so this depiction of people being in outer darkness and weeping and grinding their teeth, it's a picture of a, of, of a group of people who aren't repentant. They're not sorry for, for sins. They're not having remorse. If they had remorse, they wouldn't be there. <laughs> you know, they're, they're there precisely because they don't have remorse. But they're, they, they're raging against the, the God whose love they will not accept and whose lordship they will not submit to. And they're fearing their future judgment, but they're not repenting of it. Okay, so that, that's the realm that... that this, so, look, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe happens to people wicked who don't repent when the judgment comes. But I'll just confess to you that I, A, don't see how this idea of eternal conscious suffering is at all compatible with what we learn about God and Jesus Christ. Uh, keeping people alive for the sake of pain, no other reason. 
But on top of that, there's just a wealth of scripture. Oshita shared some of this um, uh, two weeks ago, uh, or three weeks ago. A, a wealth of scripture that just over and over again says that God, he shows no partiality in persons, that he's, his, 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 he's not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. And, and that, that Jesus is the mediator between God and all human beings, and God so loved the world, the entire world, he gives only begotten Son, and over and over and over again. And, and, and the idea of, that God would just kind of keep them in existence, I just don't see that taught in scripture. A few times, it, it talks about eternal destruction. It is eternal. But as I, the way I interpret that is, and I can't get into this too much now, I, have a sermon, I did a sermon on this a long time ago. Go look for it. Uh, <laughs> the whole sermon was on this. But the, the, the eternal isn't, I don't think, in duration. Like you're going to eternally be in the process of being destroyed. It's kind of a funky concept in and of itself if you think about it. But it's like eternal redemption that's talked about in, in Hebrews 9. Uh, it's not that we're in the eternal process of being redeemed, which would imply that we're eternally sinning. But rather, once we're redeemed, we stay redeemed, all right? It's, it's an irrevocable thing. And, and, uh, and so this judgment is irrevocable. Like, don't think you're going to, you know, have a second chance at this. It, 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 there's a finality to it. But the idea that I, I just don't see that they suffer for all eternity. So let's end with two questions. Um, what, first question is, what's up with this poor guy, poor peasant, who shows up and he doesn't have a wedding robe, so he gets bound up and thrown into outer darkness? What's up with that? Here's the thing. Um, these these peasant Jews were very, very, very poor. But it's part of Jewish culture that they put a real premium on festivities, on religious uh, festivities, on weddings and things like that. They really did it up. And they put a premium on importance on dressing proper for those festivities. The way you show that you hold this festivity or the family putting on this festivity in high regards is by wearing your best. And so all... Jewish people, however poor they were, they owned some kind of garment or robe that, that, um, that, that, that they set aside just for special occasions. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a wedding robe. The Greek just has wedding garment. And all that means is a garment that was suitable for a wedding. Some people have this idea that they all had to wear white or something. Uh, but no, it's, it's, any kind of, it's, it's your Sunday best, as we used to call it. <laughs> this is my Sunday best. <laughs> uh, this is the best you're ever going to get on, from me on a Sunday. Um, but that, that, that was just part of the culture. And so uh, everybody had their best that they wore on special occasions. So if this guy wasn't, didn't have his, his wedding garment on, didn't have uh, attire that was appropriate for a wedding, it wasn't because he didn't own any. Um, it was because he didn't want to go bother, bother to go back and change. In fact, it couldn't even be that he, he, it got stolen or burned up or something because the, the guy asked him about it and he's speechless. If, if he had an excuse, this would be the time to give it. He's speechless. Which means that in this culture, that would be interpreted as being an intentional thing. He is there on purpose. He's making a statement by showing up in his ordinary, dirty, worn, torn rags, shows up at the king's palace. And if ever there was a special occasion that you want to hold in high esteem, it's when the king invites you, a peasant, into his palace because that never happens. And yet this guy shows up in his rags. And what he's saying is, Here's what I think about your stupid wedding and about your stupid son. I mean, whatever his cause was, he, 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 he doesn't like this king, and he's showing it by how he shows up. And see, what that means is that his, his, his attire was not fit for a wedding because his heart wasn't fit for this wedding. You're supposed to go to weddings because you enjoy it. You're celebrating it. That's not where his heart was. His, he, he was really showing disdain for the king and for this whole wedding. And so his attire just reflects the character of his heart. And in fact, his heart, being, having disdain for the king, whatever anger was there, 
Well, that kind of heart is fit only for the place where people are enraged and weeping and gnashing of their teeth. And so the takeaway on this point of this parable is that you end up in the environment where your heart fits. That's compatible with your heart. He's not compatible with the wedding, neither in his tire and nor in his heart. But what he is compatible with is this outer darkness where people are, uh, have this anger and rage and are weeping and gnashing their teeth. And then what's up with this? Uh, many are called, but few are chosen. Um, this is the punchline uh, of a parable. And always pay attention to the punchline because the punchline is the main thing. The punchline is the, is the main like quality of the parable. The kingdom of God is like this. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, some folks have had been troubled by that passage. Mainly because uh, there's a group called Calvinists, and they believe everything is predestined. And they teach that this passage means that God invites everybody, he wants the gospel preached to everybody, but he has pre-selected before the foundation of the world who will accept and who won't accept. Uh, he's predestined who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. He invites everybody, but, but he chooses who is going to get in. Which, and maybe this is just me, I don't know, but doesn't that make the invitation kind of disingenuous? Hey, you're all welcome. Not. Uh, now, here's the thing. Again, of course, that freaks people out because they're like, how do I know that I'm chosen? Maybe I'm not chosen. I, you know, can I be sure? I feel like I'm chosen, but there have been people who have been chosen or thought they were chosen, but then they ended up being not chosen because they lost their faith and walked away and, and whatever. So I can't be sure that I'm chosen. I mean, if you read some of the Puritan journals back in the 16th, 17th century, it's excruciating. They're just like, oh, I have to make sure of my salvation. How do I know? How do I know? Jonathan Edwards would say, like, have I had any thought that was not of God today? Have I? Man, what a tortured psyche. Uh, but you know, a lot hangs on this like all eternity, so you want to make sure. Or how do you know your kids are chosen? Maybe your kids aren't chosen. Maybe for the glory of God, your kids have been predestined to go to hell. But you're supposed to love God anyways because your love for God should be greater than your kids. And oh man, it can, it can mess people's heads up. Here's the thing. I've got a lot of reasons for thinking that interpretation is not remotely true or even possible. Um, for one thing, the picture of God creating all these human beings, but then just choosing any, meeny, miny, mo. you get to heaven, you ought to let go. That, that idea is so contrary to what we learn about God and Jesus Christ. You know, he, 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 he died not just for our sins, but for the, for the whole world, it says in 1 John 2, 2. Um, I, I, I just, it, it's so inconsistent with that. And you have all these other kind of passages that God is not the kind of God who does that. He wants everyone to come to salvation. He's not one that any should perish, and so on, and so on, and so on. So whatever, the, whatever it means, it doesn't mean that. But if you just look at, look at the parable, this is the closing of the parable, and you can see it doesn't mean that. The king never does that. Even though this king is, is a ruthless guy, he never says, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You know, no, the people who don't end up in his wedding, it wasn't because he selected them out. It's because they selected themselves out. First, is that, that one group, they reject him. They didn't reject the invitation. And then this guy shows up intentionally in, his, in drab clothes because he's showing disdain for the king. So he selects himself out. So it's not the king that did the selecting. It's the people that did the selecting. So the passage is saying many are called. In fact, the many there stands for all. And in Semitic language, many often stood for, for all. Read Romans 5. You'll see that. Paul uses all and many interchangeably. The many just expresses the great multitude of the all. So everybody got saying, come on in, come on in. But if you are chosen... It's not because there's selecting going on in God. It's because there's selecting going on, on with humans. God chooses everyone who chooses him. And he, he does that because love has got to be chosen, and love's the point of the whole thing, a love relationship. Uh, so, of course, he chooses, 
You can't get married to someone who doesn't want to marry you. <laughs> it's not rocket science. So he chooses all to choose him. And he would love to choose everybody. He wants to choose everybody, but not everybody chooses him. And so really, with the, to say many are called, but few are chosen, it's another way of saying many are called, but love has got to be chosen. And uh, that's, that's the selecting process here. All right. Amen. So what's the takeaway on this? It's always good to ask what to take away on a parable because parables, they're not here to teach new theology. Um, the parables are always practical. There's always a takeaway. Uh, they aim at uh, adjusting attitudes and behavior. And so it's always good to ask, what is this parable saying about our attitudes or our behavior? What do we need to address? And the answer is this. And it's, it's I'll warn you ahead of time, it's, a, it's an ominous warning. Because... What the parable is saying is that it's not enough to accept the invitation uh, and think that nothing else has to change. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'll go, and then not dress up for it. Um, or to put it in other words, it's not enough to say, uh, I believe in Jesus, and yet think that your life can just go on as it did before. Uh, it, it's not enough to think you can be in a relationship with Jesus, and nothing about you is going to change. What, is, what it's saying is that don't expect to sit at the banquet table unless you're willing to dress for it. And the dressing here, of course, isn't referring to literal clothing, but, but to our attitudes and to our, 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 our behaviors and, and, and the rest. It, 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 the warning is, don't think that you can be in a real relationship with Jesus and go on thinking and behaving exactly as you did before with nothing changing. That is like, and it's a huge one for, for American Christians. It's really, the whole parable is against this idea of cheap grace. Now, that, uh, yeah, I'll believe and, and say the sinner's prayer, and then I can just kind of coast in. Uh, that's like getting married, and yet you continue to think and act like a single person. It doesn't work. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, a person who, who gets married and yet continues to think and act like a single person. They continue to think of me instead of we. Uh, they have shown no re regard for their spouse. They do whatever they want. Maybe they have relationships outside of the marriage. That kind of person is showing disdain on the marriage. They're acting like the marriage isn't real. Or they're acting like, like, like all you need to be married is that certificate on the wall that says you're married. But see, as everyone, anyone who's married here knows, marriage is a whole lot more than about a certificate. In fact, the certificate only has meaning if it reflects a reality. And the reality is this one flesh reality that God creates when two people come together and they say, I do for better or for worse and stick to it. It's a one fleshing going on. And the whole job of being a spouse is to get your thoughts and get your life and your behavior to line up with the reality that you're married. To put off that garment of singleness and put on that garment of, of, of marriage. Cut off all those old attitudes you had as a single person, and now you put on this covenant garment. you got to dress for the reality. you got to dress for the reality. And it's the same thing in our relationship with, 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 with Jesus. Uh, you know, that is salvation. The relationship is salvation. Salvation isn't like a third thing that you get as a result of being related to Christ. The relationship is the salvation. It's, uh, that's why Jesus says in John 17, 3, uh, Father, this is eternal life, that people know you, and by knowing it doesn't mean just intellectually, but really know, they know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is salvation. And it's a real thing. It's not a legal thing. It's not like a certificate on the wall. Uh, it's not something that you just get with, with, with uh, saying the sinner's prayer or whatever they told you you had to jump through to get this. It's not a legal deal. It's a real deal. It's a covenantal deal. It creates a new reality. You're in Christ Jesus. And that's got to change everything because it does change everything if it's real. You can't be related to Jesus and think that you can go on living as though you weren't related to Jesus. Because 
if you're going on living as though you're not related to Jesus, you're not related to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the invitation, yes, you have to accept the invitation, but there's, there's, there's addressing that has got to go on. Uh, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 is this. He says, you are taught to put away your former way of life. Make sure your former way of life is former. Your old self, corrupted and deluded by its lust. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and clothe yourselves with that new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on that old garment, that old way of thinking, those old, that old pattern of behavior, those old attitudes, those old grudges. Those, oh, put, away, put, put away that. And now, since you are in Christ, start living like you're in Christ. Think like you're in Christ. Bring every thought captive to Christ. Put on that garment of Christ. Get dressed because the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. And it says in Revelation 19 that the bride is making herself ready. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing here, making ourselves ready. And we're in process on it for sure. And we stumble on it for sure. We come short on it for sure. But the important thing is that you're moving in that direction and, and, and learning how to, how, to, how to dress appropriately for this beautiful occasion that's coming up. This parable is warning that, that that needs to be going on. So the question we always need to be asking ourselves is, are we hanging on to any of our old garments? Um, are we, are, are we, to any degree, still living as though we were that old self instead of the new self that we are in Christ Jesus? Um, and the Spirit, one of the Spirit's job is to be telling. He doesn't work at everything at once. We, we'd go nuts if he did that. But, but he'll say, okay, now it's time to work on this. Okay, now it's time to shed that piece of clothing. Now it's time to get, let go of that sleeve you've been hanging on to. Now, for some folks here, maybe the Spirit would be saying, time to outgrow that attitude of yours. You know, I know you, you think this is just who you are because you've always been this way, but when you surrender to Christ, it's no longer who you are. It's time to get that to line up with the reality and, and, and let that go. For some, it might be, you know that relationship that you're starting to cultivate right now is not, God does not give that the green light because that's going to harm you, uh, and you need to drop that and, and, and let that piece of clothing go and put on the, the garment of Jesus Christ. For some, it may be an activity that you have or grudge that you've been holding, that private sin that you've got, each of us has different things. And the thing is, God doesn't ever force us to do this because love's got to be chosen. That's always true. So we have the capacity to say, I don't want to. I like my old clothes. They're comfortable. They're familiar. It's who I am. And, and besides, it feels good. Uh, and so it feels like a sacrifice to get rid of that old clothing, but the truth is the sacrifice is when you don't get rid of the clothing because the joy comes when you put on the true clothing and you get dressed for the wedding. Get dressed for the wedding. Amen. So I encourage all of us to, to really be listening to the voice of God. And here's an area that it's really good to do in Christian community because we have got all sorts of blind spots. If you've been wearing the same garment all your life, you probably don't even notice that you're wearing the garment. But if you have a, a friend uh, and, and you invite their input, they might say, you know what, that garment stinks. Uh, and, and you're not supposed to be wearing it anyways. Jesus, he wants to deck you out in a whole new set of clothes. Uh, and, and I'll help you take that garment off. So we all need input on that. we got blind spots. But be in process on this. We're, we're to be the bride that is making ourselves ready, getting dressed for the occasion. And it may feel like sacrifice getting rid of it, but the sacrifice comes from not getting rid of it. And I'll end with this ominous word, that here's a, here's a truth. That, that, and you know this from your own experience, I'm sure. That whatever you do, the longer you do it, the better you get at doing it. And that is for the better or for the worse. Uh, you yield to God, and it may like, feel like torture. But next week, it won't feel quite as torturous. And maybe a month from now, not quite as torturous. Um, and, and, and you get better at that. You get better at that. Talked to a brother in between the song set uh, and, and this, and he was telling me about how his highlight of his, of, of his summer was 
He's been sober. And, and, and just, just kicking all the, amen, amen, amen. And that's a beautiful highlight. And I, I bet, I, I don't know, but I bet for the first week it was like shakes and chills and, and all that. But the second week it's a little easier, and the next week it's a little easier. And, and you always got to stay vigilant on that. But whatever we do, we're creatures of habit. We get better at doing it. But that's true when we resist God as well. I've known people who decide to embark on a relationship or activity, and they get, come under conviction. But they can fight it off. Next time, they don't feel quite as intense conviction. And a year later, hardly any conviction at all. And if you keep going on that road, you might lose the capacity to feel conviction. Whatever we do, we get better at doing. And that's a very scary road to go down. That's the road that this parable is warning us about. So when you feel it, when you hear the Spirit saying, come on, let's get rid of this article of clothing, you know you're better than this, that's the time to do it. Because there's no guarantees about tomorrow. Don't get good at resisting God. Get good at yielding to God. Whatever you do, you get better and better at doing it, for better or for worse. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I would like to invite the uh, prayer teams to come forward here. They'll be at the stairs, and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you uh, to come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to pray with you. And uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider becoming one. Uh, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what that's about. As many of you can make it, I, we're going to have this baptism here at, starting at 1.30, and Baptism is all about what we were just talking about here. People are going into the water. They're saying, my old self is dead. And they come up out of the water saying, I'm, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I identify with Jesus' death going down. I identify with his life coming up. So if you can possibly make that, come and, and, and join them uh, in, in, in this in wonderful celebration. Father, as we leave here, I pray you would, by the power of your spirit, be at work inside of us. Give us ears to hear and give us a heart that's willing to submit. Uh, keep, keep, thank you for your patience on working with us. Thank you for that, Lord God. Keep it up and, and, and help us to be a people who are, in fact, the bride of Christ, who see this as a reality and are working to get our thoughts and our lives and our attitudes in alignment with the truth of who we are in Christ. We want to thank you for the invitation, but we also want to be dressed appropriately on that day. Make your bride ready in Jesus' name. And the bride of Christ said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.